It's Tuesday, and you know what that means. It's a new episode with the Murder Bucket Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, Murder Bucket family. We have a very interesting episode for you tonight. It is all Thanksgiving-related crimes. But before we get started, let's do a quick weekend-slash-week recap, as we haven't done one in a while. I think the last thing that I talked about with you guys was that I was an election judge on election day this year, meaning that I was the supervisor over an entire polling location. I had to go to a three-hour training a few weeks beforehand. Then I had to go pick up all of the equipment, drive to the polling location, set all of it up, get it ready for the next day. So I was there for three hours the night before, and then the morning of, we had to be there by 5.45 in the morning, set everything up, run a whole bunch of reports and make sure that all the machines were working. And then by the end of the day, once the polls closed, we had to run more reports, shut everything down, and then take it all back to the election office. And so I ended up not getting home until 11 o'clock at night. It was fun, but man, was it exhausting. About a week and a half ago, it was Veterans Day. We celebrate that here in our house because my husband was in the Army for 10 years and deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. I have a small health update with all of the health issues that I've been dealing with recently. I went to a rheumatologist last week who did some extensive blood work to kind of rule out a few things. We can check off that I do not have lupus and I do not have a connective tissue disease. So the next thing on the list was to go to a second neurologist to really get a second opinion. That appointment was supposed to be today, but apparently I accidentally canceled it, and I didn't realize that until after I showed up at the doctor's office, which was an hour away from where I work. I signed in, I sat down, and then the person at the front desk called me over and said, Miss Palmer, why are you here? You canceled your appointment, to which, of course, I was surprised. But come to find out in all of the confusion and doctor's visits that I've been going to, I had canceled one appointment for a second rheumatologist because I obviously didn't need that one anymore. And I thought when I canceled it that the doctor's office called me the next day just to verify that I wanted to cancel the appointment. But apparently it was this doctor's office wanting to see if I wanted a sooner appointment. And instead I told him I wanted to cancel the appointment. Thankfully, she was able to find me an appointment that was really soon. 
And hopefully that appointment will go well and maybe either we'll learn something new or be a little closer to figuring out what's going on. This past Friday, my grandfather celebrated his 92nd birthday, as well as my brother celebrated his 36th birthday, and the pastor of our church celebrated his birthday. So birthdays all around. On Saturday, I went to a friend's baby sprinkle, meaning that she already has a little girl, but is now pregnant with a little boy. So of course, She has a bunch of like baby items like bottles and bouncers and those kind of things, but she needed a double stroller, a new car seat, and of course, boy clothes. Well, that's about it in my world. Let's go ahead and get started with tonight's episode. And I have about 10 Thanksgiving related crimes that I want to share with you. The first one being about Briani Jamal Rutland who had recently returned to Deschler High School in Tuscumbia, Alabama in 2013 as a volunteer football, track, and basketball coach. His girlfriend, Morgan Presley, had notified the police on November 25th that he was missing after not returning home for 24 hours. Police checked his phone's GPS location and realized that it was in a sewer. When they found his phone, they also found his wallet. On Thanksgiving night, police located his gold Chevy Impala at the Village Apartments in Sheffield. Even with this discovery, police were no closer to locating Briani. The following day, however, a group of hikers notified the police that they noticed a large amount of blood on the old railroad bridge in Sheffield. Police then located Briani's body later that day and he was identified by his family. His body had been weighed down with concrete blocks that were chained to him. Police knew that because of this, he had not committed suicide. By Saturday, police were able to narrow down a suspect and arrested Jeremy LaShawn Williams. It was determined that Briani went to Jeremy's apartment to collect on a debt, and when Jeremy indicated that he didn't have the money, Briani threatened to cut off one of his fingers until he was paid. A struggle began and Jeremy was choked until he passed out. As he was coming to, he realized that Briani was attempting to cut off one of his fingers. This is when another struggle began. Jeremy retrieved the knife from Briani and began to stab him. He ended up stabbing him over 30 times and then shot him in the face. Briani died from the gunshot wound. To dispose of the evidence, Jeremy decided to weigh him down and toss him off the bridge. Jeremy was initially charged with murder, but that was upgraded to capital murder after the court determined that the killing happened during a robbery. In 2016, Jeremy had been convicted of the charges and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Next, we have Christopher Gaddis who was a youth pastor at the local Grace Lutheran Church in Chester, Virginia. He and his wife, Jeanette, had been married for a decade, and he was a stepdad to her daughter, Candace. Just six weeks before Thanksgiving of 2017, Candace and her boyfriend, Andrew, decided to relocate to Virginia to be closer to family. While they were house hunting, they moved into her mom and stepdad's home. 
And with families staying for an extended period of time, tensions began to rise the longer the stay became. Christopher felt as though they had overstayed their welcome. Jeanette tried to keep the tension down in the home, but she knew that Christopher had a temper. Two days before Thanksgiving, an argument arose after wine was spilled by accident. Christopher pushed his wife, and when he appeared as if he was going to punch her, Andrew stepped in to try and calm everyone down. After this altercation, Christopher told his stepdaughter repeatedly that it was time for her and Andrew to leave. Jeanette was worried by her husband's erratic behavior that she began to record every interaction she had with him. The evening before Thanksgiving is when things took a turn. Around 6 p.m., Candace and Andrew were outside relaxing in the hot tub when Christopher came outside and confronted the couple. He is seen on home surveillance footage, shaking his finger at them and raising his voice. Jeanette came to intervene and began to record him. Once the situation had calmed down, Christopher decided to go upstairs and cool off. While he was up there, he heard them talking about him through an open window and believed that they were belittling him and his anger grew even more intense. He began to send several strange text messages to his wife, stating that he was afraid of her and his stepdaughter. He later claimed that they had both threatened him. Shortly before midnight, Christopher decided to walk upstairs and retrieve his 45 caliber handgun. He then walked back downstairs and immediately pointed his gun at his family. His wife picked up her phone and began to record. He fatally shot her and she fell to the floor dead. He then fired several shots at his hysterical stepdaughter. Jeanette's phone was still recording and screaming and desperate cries from Andrew can be heard. Andrew scrambled behind the table and began begging Christopher for mercy. Andrew then tried to escape by running through the house and out the front door, but Christopher followed. He shot Andrew and he fell dead outside in the garden. Several neighbors heard the gunshots and the home's alarm system went off and triggered a local patrol officer to come to the house. When the officer arrived, he saw Andrew's body on the lawn and Christopher sitting on the porch. Christopher told the officer that he was acting in self-defense. Later that year, Christopher pleaded guilty to three counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 55 years in prison for each of the three murders. These terms will be served concurrently, meaning his active sentence is 58 years. Our next story occurred in 2012 while Shanika Alsup of Annapolis, Maryland, was enjoying Thanksgiving dinner with her family when an argument began between her and her brother Deontay Wallace. The argument then escalated and Shanika picked up a serving fork and stabbed her brother in the neck. The officer who responded to the 911 call found Deontay in the parking lot of an apartment building holding his neck with blood all over his white t-shirt. He was transported to a local hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Shanika was then arrested and charged with first-degree assault, second-degree assault, and reckless endangerment. She was held on a $1 million bond. I have been unable to determine if she was ever convicted on these charges. Our next story is about Brian David Smith of Little Falls, Minnesota. 
Brian believed that his home had been burglarized several times over the last few months. He only reported one of the burglaries to the police and only found evidence of two previous burglaries. He claims that over $4,000 in cash, his father's POW watch, coins from his collection, and a chainsaw were among the items that were stolen. Since the first burglary occurred, Brian began to wear a holster with a loaded gun inside his home and started stashing bottles of water and granola bars in his basement. He then installed a security system in hopes to protect himself. On Thanksgiving Day of 2012, Brian devised a plan to catch the wannabe thieves, so he parked his car down the street in front of a neighbor's house to make it seem like he wasn't home. While he was visiting that neighbor, he noticed 18-year-old Haley Kiefer and 17-year-old Nicholas Brady breaking into his home. He quietly entered his home, turned on a recording device that he had set up, and removed several light bulbs from the ceiling lights and sat in a chair that had him hidden from view. He waited in silence for 12 minutes until Nicholas began to walk down the basement stairs. This is when Brian shot Nicholas twice while on the stairs and once after he had already fallen down. Brian then wrapped Nicholas's body in a tarp and dragged him in another room. About 15 minutes later, he reloaded his gun and took his position back in the chair to wait for Haley. Once she entered the home and made her way down the stairs, Brian shot her. Although only wounded, Haley fell down the stairs. Brian can be heard on the recording sarcastically saying, Oh, sorry about that, followed by Haley saying, Oh my God. Brian then shoots her again several times in the torso and then in her left eye. He then called her several derogatory names while dragging her into the other room and tossing her on top of Nicholas's body. He shot her one final time under the chin, this shot killing her. Brian then decided to report the killings the next day, stating that he did not want to bother the police on Thanksgiving. With his recorded statements, the evidence indicating he planned the shootings as well as the excessive number of shots fired he was charged with second-degree murder. However, in 2013, he was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. His trial then began on April 21st of 2014. Eight days later, he was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder with premeditation and two counts of second-degree murder after the jury deliberated for only three hours. Brian was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Immediately following this trial, Brian appealed his conviction and sentence to the Minnesota Supreme Court. They affirmed his conviction and sentence on March 9, 2016. In November of 2018, Brian's attorneys filed a federal appeal citing a brief closure of the trial to the public as grounds for his conviction to be set aside. The federal district court denied relief and the United States Court of Appeals affirmed. Brian's attorneys then filed for a petition of cert to Rory on November 20th of 2022 in the United States Supreme Court. This was denied on March 22nd, 2021. Brian is currently incarcerated at Oak Park Heights Prison, 
which is a level five maximum security prison. Our next story is about 23-year-old Omema Nelson, who married 56-year-old William Nelson in October of 1991, just days after meeting. It is stated in several articles that she had plans to meet older men, marry them, steal from them, and then skip town. With William, she claimed that almost immediately after getting married, she suffered sexual abuse by her husband. So on Thanksgiving Day, November 28, 1991, Omema claims that William sexually assaulted her in their Costa Mesa, California apartment. Following the assault, Omema found a pair of scissors and stabbed William. She then began to beat him with a clothing iron so hard and so many times that the iron broke in her hand. After killing him, she began to dismember his body. She boiled his head and hands in an attempt to remove any fingerprints. She then mixed several body parts with leftover turkey and disposed of him in a garbage disposal. Neighbors called the police for a noise complaint because they could hear the disposal running for several hours. Omima was arrested on a suspicion of murder charges on December 2, 1991, and her trial began one year later. She was convicted of second-degree murder on January 12, 1993, and sentenced to 27 years in prison. In 2006, Omema became eligible for parole, but was denied because of her unpredictableness and threat to public safety. She then became eligible again in 2011, but was denied, citing that she took no responsibility for the murder and would not be a productive citizen if she were freed. Her next eligibility for parole isn't until 2026. Our next story takes place in 2004, when 51-year-old Janet Yeary of Kokomo, Indianapolis, began cooking food in anticipation for Thanksgiving. Several hours later, her daughter Carly, who lives across the street, began to worry about her mom when no one had heard from her. Carly let the day pass without a word from her mother before she went across the street to look for herself. Carly is quoted in an article on CBS4Indy.com stating, I don't hear from her, I'm calling. I don't hear from her, I'm calling, and she's not answering. She's not showing that she's been online. So I get up, I look, and I see the garage is still open. And this is when I find her here and come to realize she has been here since sometime the day before. I later found out that the food preparation had started, the turkey was in the oven, and it was running. I didn't know what happened. A suspect was identified very quickly by detectives as Danny Case. In several articles, it stated that he had been dropped off in her neighborhood the night before with no way to get home and had been going door-to-door in an attempt to call for a ride. All signs pointed to Danny, but detectives were never able to gather enough evidence to link him to her killing. At the time, the blood found at the crime scene wasn't enough to develop a DNA strand. The case went cold for 17 years until Kokomo police announced in January of 2020 the closure of the case due to a recent break in the investigation. An acquaintance of Danny's came forward and told investigators that he had once confessed to him about killing a woman 
after he knocked on her door to ask to use her phone on Thanksgiving Day 2004. In a statement released by police, it says, We understand this is a difficult time for the family, as these conversations open the wounds that the senseless tragedy left her family. Our condolences remain with Janet Yeary and her amazing family. We pray for peace for all of you. Our next story comes on Thanksgiving evening, November 28, 1985, in Lake Worth, Texas. The Blount family was celebrating the holiday together. The family included Dad Joe, Mom Susan, daughter Angela, son Robert, Joe's brother Carl, and his nephew Michael. After dinner was over, Susan went to a back bedroom to lie down for a nap. Joe drove Robert, Angela, and Michael to a nearby convenience store a half a mile away to buy snacks and beer. While they were gone, Susan heard a knock on the door, but when she looked out the window, she didn't see anybody. This made her return to the bedroom and continue with her nap. When the rest of the family returned, they found a briefcase on the doorstep of the home. Angela picked up the briefcase and brought it inside. As soon as she opened it, it exploded. Joe, Angela, and Michael were killed when it went off. The case remained cold for 12 years until in 1997 when Michael Tony was sitting in jail waiting for a trial on a burglary charge, confessed to his cellmate that he placed the bomb that killed three people in the Blount family. Soon after his confession, Michael was indicted for capital murder. His trial began in May of 1999 in Fort Worth, Texas. During the trial, Susan and Robert Blount provided testimony of what occurred that day. Michael's ex-wife then testified. She stated that Michael and his best friend went to a propane shop near the Blount family's home, proceeded to get out of his truck with a briefcase, and then disappeared. Soon after, he returned to the truck without the briefcase. One of Michael's cellmates then testified Michael told him he was paid $5,000 for the murders and that they were part of a drug-related hit, but the bomb was put on the wrong doorstep. Michael was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. That was until nine months later when it was discovered that the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office had withheld 14 pieces of evidence that were key to his defense. His case was then turned over to the Attorney Generals of Texas. On September 2, 2009, all charges were dropped against him and he was released from prison. Michael then died a month later on October 3rd in a car accident near Rusk, Texas. Since his death, the case has become inactive and cold. We are going to now move away from the more serious crimes of murders and stabbings and discuss three stories that had very interesting endings. First, we have Jimmy Milligan, who was robbed in 2013 while walking to his friend's apartment on Thanksgiving Day in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The robbers stole the turkey that he was going to cook, as well as a bag of stuffing and his wallet. After they fled, Jimmy called 911 and told dispatcher Denny Vieira that his turkey had been stolen. At first, Denny thought he was joking, but soon realized by the tone of his voice that he was being serious. Police arrived and discovered that his turkey had in fact been stolen. 
Dispatcher Denny felt bad for Jimmy and attempted to buy him a new turkey from a store, but since it was Thanksgiving Day, they were sold out everywhere. So instead, they bought Jimmy and his friend two turkey dinners from Boston Market and had them delivered. Jimmy states in an article on NBCConnecticut.com that, I can't say enough about the compassion and empathy shown by the men and women who work in the 911 center. It is a difficult job. When they answer the phone, usually they are speaking to someone in crisis. Denny did her job well, got the police to the scene, and then thought, I want to do something more. Our next story happened in Miami Gardens, Florida, when a man attempted to rob a gas station on Thanksgiving Day 2013. The clerk decided to be as calm as possible. He befriended the robber and told him that he could help himself to some beer in the cooler. While the robber was taking the beer, the clerk triggered the secret alarm that contacted police. The robber ended up grabbing so much beer that when he attempted to exit the store, his bags broke and the beer scattered across the parking lot. He was so busy trying to pick up the cans and hide money in his clothes that he didn't notice the police arrived. Of course, he was arrested. Our final Thanksgiving-themed story happened to a woman in North Carolina who was loading her Thanksgiving groceries in her car when someone attempted to carjack her and throw her to the ground. A bystander sprang into action when they grabbed her frozen turkey and hit the carjacker over the head. Unfortunately, the carjacker was still able to steal the car but was later caught by police because he had suffered a head wound. He was then transported to the hospital. And that's where we are going to end tonight with our Thanksgiving-themed episode. Everyone have a wonderful Thanksgiving week or just a normal week if you do not celebrate Thanksgiving. But before you go, please take a moment to check out this promo from my friends at the Harpy Hour podcast. Hey everyone, you're invited to Harpy Harpy Hour. Hour! I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. We are the Harpies. And Harpy Hour is our new podcast featuring ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Were you ever suspicious that pigeons were secretly spying on you? How do you know who to eat first if you survive a shipwreck? Do problematic musicals send you into an uncontrollable rage? If so, then Harpy Hour might be your new favorite podcast. That's H-A-R-P-Y for Harpy, and new episodes air every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on all social media at Harpy Hour Pod. And check us out on harpyhourpodcast.com. Okay, bye! I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.